when we talk about exegetical hermeneutics, the New Testament authors are carrying forward. So we can read Matthew and say, this is weird, man. But Matthew's like, what are you talking about? Just read the Bible. And so this is where we, we need to take the step and read Matthew's Bible with Matthew. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. Into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and I don't know which episode number this is, but I interview Gary Snitker, and we get into the Old Testament's use of the Old Testament. Um, so it's a great conversation. We talk about how that informs how we are to understand how the New Testament writers are quoting Old Testament. We get into uh, documentary hypothesis and critical theory. Uh, it's a really great episode. And for the first time, I'm doing something a little new. So uh, this is for um, this is for the listener. I'm holding up a book. If you're watching uh, the video podcast or on YouTube, uh, Gary Snitker has agreed to give away three books. So we're doing a, a book giveaway for free, all you have to do uh, to enter uh, to for a chance to win the free book is to share the Facebook uh, or Instagram post about this episode. So you can enter in on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, you can share it by any means, uh, but as long as you share that post that I make on Instagram or Facebook about this particular episode then you are entering in a chance to win one of these books. And it's an incredible book. It's a huge volume. Uh, he basically goes through every single book of the Old Testament and gives a really good sample size of how the Old Testament uh, uses other portions of the Old Testament. So it's just an incredible study tool, uh, guide, and resource to help you study the Bible. Some more details I forgot to share. This contest, um, I don't know if it's a contest, but... Uh, to enter into the book giveaway, you'll have two weeks from the release of this episode. So the last day to enter in will be June 30th, 2023, and we can ship anywhere in the continental U.S. Um, so with no further ado, let's get weird. All right, man, welcome uh, to the show. I'm super psyched to have you on. First, I want to note that... You know how uh, Zoom has like the the backgrounds that you can put on or whatever. Yeah, that's <laughs> one right. Of them, one of them is the bookcase, but you got the real thing, man. You this got is the... a is this is a a real a Zoom real book. It's not the Zoom thing. Yeah, it's incredible. It looks uh it looks awesome, and you have a great background. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm trying to think. I I heard about you uh from GK Bill. He came on to talk about the New Testament's use of Old Testament. And uh, he mentioned your book. I think he had it on his shelf. He pulled it off um, and, and mentioned that you were kind of one of the few that were really writing about Old Testament use of Old Testament. So, um, uh, and then here you are. I'm so pumped. Actually, oddly enough, I was on a, I was a guest on a podcast. Um, it's not come out yet, the episode, but the, the interviewee was one of your former students. Uh, oh, yeah? 
Yeah, his name's Chris Pace. He said you wouldn't remember him, but he wouldn't be dead. <laughs> I mentioned that, but so so it was just kind of a weird thing. Um, he he mentioned you, and I was like, "Hey, I'm about to interview him." So anyway, oh, that's uh, cool. I wanted to make mention of that, but uh, I'm I'm thrilled to have you on. Um, and and really, man, I gotta say, um, you sent me a, a copy of your book, which was so generous. Um, because this is I'll hold it up for those that are. But you told me you were gonna watching. read it. Well, I I, I did. I, mean, I didn't read it cover to cover. I don't, I don't think that's the design for this thing. Um, it would take me. I don't know. I probably, uh, I could probably get get through it pretty quickly. But um, I did. I did go through every book and and, and look and, and survey the whole thing, um, and uh, I may prep some questions from that. Um, but I'm going to keep it as a as a resource as I as I go through books. And I have a. I just recently uh, bought a, a reference Bible, and it's uh it's kind of sending me on that track of jumping from book to book and looking at illusions and where we see uh connections so uh anyway i absolutely uh, am fascinated by this topic um i sort of got into it teaching the bible and being forced to look at all the direct references we see in the new testament um and uh through looking at that um, this came up, Old Testament, use of Old Testament, which is kind of a, a foreign thing. Um, but uh, but you seem to be a, a, at least a pioneer in that field. And so, um, you know, looking at the size of this volume, um, there's a, a lot of love that, that went into this, a lot of dedication, um, a lot of passion. And, and man, I super, I, I appreciate that. And you doing the giveaway, it just lets me know that you you are writing uh you know for those that are going to be picking up this book you want people to, to to read it and and to uh and to learn how to how to read the bible and that's just incredible so anyway um give us some background uh about yourself and tell us how this project got started well i've been um uh, samuel thank you for having me on um yeah. i i had to figure out the deal with the weird christian podcast um, since I'm old school, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm glad to be on. Thank you. Um, I think I, I've been teaching Old Testament for uh, nearly 30 years now. Mm. So um, uh, as far as this book goes, you're exactly right. The um, I, I wanted to do a book like this back in the 1990s, and I was um, just young coming out of my PhD work, and I I really had kind of gotten really interested. I'd, I've taken courses back in my seminary days on the New Testament use of the Old, but I did a lot of my doctoral studies on the Old Testament use of the Old, mm. but really in a connected way. So I had in mind to do a book. Back then, I probably only could have done case studies, but to kind of illustrate um, some examples of how the prophets use the Torah and how the Psalms use the Torah and things like this. And I wanted to call it, you know, reinventing the Bible, something like this. Mm. And um, a publisher was interested in it. Um, I was having breakfast with a, a very nice gentleman up in Canada at a conference. And I, I guess I was going on and on. And he said, Hey, listen, I, I work at this publishing house. Would you want to write a book about this? Oh, wow. I said, sure. So he gave me his card and I um, wrote a proposal. Well, of course, they didn't want to do that book and they got me to do a different book instead. Hmm. 
But all these mm. years later, I was able to come back to it. But over the years, I've been um, in the classroom and out, conferences and so forth. This has been my area of research is how the Bible's connected together. So when it came to this book, I'm in a much different place than I was when I got rid of uh, my PhD program. So I wanted to do a book for students because, I mean, probably people in the pew don't know all these things, but there's there's really hundreds of books that are case studies mm -hmm. of like, um, you know, Joel's use of the Hebrew Bible, all, all sorts of book like books like this, dissertations, article. Uh, this is a very um, studied area mm. in the past 40, 50 years. Mm. So I wanted to do a student-oriented project, but I also wanted to do it in a little bit of a different framework. Um, specifically, I don't think um, that anybody's done a, a study, the focus that I've taken is within the framework of progressive revelation. So moving through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, looking at the biblical authors, reuse of earlier scriptures, and seeing that aspect of progressive revelation. Hmm. Uh, so, so those are two of the things. And I think the other thing that was important to me is to do the whole Old Testament. Now, in one sense, it's kind of crazy, and it would have been a lot easier of a project to just do case studies or to just do part of it. Sure. Yeah. But I think that that's been the problem, one of the problems mm. of these hundreds of studies that are out there in the past few decades, because really somebody that's an expert on Ezekiel's use of scripture, is that really indicative of the entire Hebrew scriptures? Or is that sort of, is he doing something a little unique, even within the prophets? Mm. So I, I felt like without doing all of the scrolls of the Old Testament, then would we really have a good vantage point to evaluate how Revelation moves forward to the redemption of Christ? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the few pieces that I had in mind with this book, but it, I was especially driven to put these other pieces that I just mentioned together, but for students. Um, there's not too many student-friendly introductions to this area, but it's and it's it's an important area because, like you said, a lot of people study the scriptures with the scriptures, but there's not been, I think, enough intentional making of on ramps for people to get into it at this level. Mm, yeah, that's incredible, and that excites me because. Um... I was I was unaware that this was so vast. I mean, you're you're in it, so you've you know you've you've kind of seen all the all the work. Um, whereas a layman like me, um, you know, I'd never even heard of Old Testament use of Old Testament. And so here you you, you publish this book, and this is uh, almost it, almost like an encyclopedia. You can pick you you know as you're studying one book, you can go through. And, and flip to that that book as you've covered them all um, and you can have that um, as you read through uh, so it's man it's such an awesome resource um, but because of the breadth of it like if you even page through the bibliography and the thing and one of the reviewers I don't count things but a reviewer said that there's over a thousand 
entries in the bibliography. Yeah. But uh, in none of the areas of the uh, uh, of the Old Testament did I like get everything out there. I wasn't even trying because this is just an introduction. So mm. there's a lot more mm. of the scholarly conversation even than just what is representative in a bibliography like this one. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, that's wild. How long did it take to, to write? <laughs> I've been asked that question a lot. Um, so a book like this takes like 20 years, then five years. So, mm. you know, something I've been working on as an area of interest in studying the Bible and teaching and writing and other articles and research and so forth for decades. But then when Zondervan invited me to do this project, then it just takes five years. So uh, the backbone of the book is uh, for many years, I've had students, my seminary students, write papers on the Old Testament use of Old Testament. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, early on, I got this perspective that it's one thing where a student will write a paper, let's say on Isaiah, mm-hmm. and then the student puts on the lab coat and they put Isaiah out like a specimen and they work on it. But it's something else if the student is sitting with Isaiah and Isaiah is their teacher and they're studying how Isaiah interprets scripture. So then they're not dissecting Isaiah, Isaiah showing them how to understand scripture and how to apply it to their lives and how to make sense of the Mm. larger work Mm. of redemption that God's doing. Mm. So that sort of double perspective that I've made students do um, in the classroom, I of course came up with lists of passages for students to use to write their papers on. They could pick one. Mm. And so those lists grew over the years. And so that's really the backbone of the book. I had this extremely long list because that's what I've been teaching and arguing about in class for all these years with students. Wow. And so then needed to do some other work with it, of course, but that, that was the starting point. Yeah. Nice. Um, Well, I I love that you said that because I noticed I've only had this uh, reference Bible for a short time, but already I found myself um, praying more often uh, in the middle of, of, of my reading, um, having more time for reflection um, and it being more of a devotional time as opposed to just pure like study and, 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 and reading. And that's because just like you said, I can see through the references how some of these authors um, are either alluding to other things or how it points forward to Christ. Uh, and it's it's really quite incredible. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and the more of those connections you see, uh, the less strange or weird some of those uh, quotations are that we see in the New Testament, like Paul or in Matthew, that sort of make you scratch your head a little bit, the more you kind of do the cross-referencing, you think, well, this is just how uh, this is just how it was kind of done. Um, it's just, it's new to us, but it wasn't probably, you know, necessarily new to the writers of Scripture. Um, have you, have you noticed post-publishing the book, um, like an illusion or something that you didn't put in it? I I, I did not want to, the, the publishing house, of course, early on wanted to use the word comprehensive. And I said, right. no yeah, way. Yeah. No, no, because okay. no. gotcha. yeah. all it's going to take is one thing, and that's what this is going to be about. 
Yeah. As I said, these are just leading examples. Mm-hmm. So, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really, I wanted to get a good, healthy representative from every single book of the Hebrew scriptures so that it could be a true comparison. So it's comprehensive in the sense of all the books. But yeah, since I've written this, um, I think about two dozen additional uh, interpretive allusions or exegetical allusions have come to my attention. About half of those are from doctoral students who have written to me and told me they're writing their do- dissertation mm-hmm. on cool. such and so, and do I agree with them or not? So I, I get asked that on a regular basis. Mm. And then uh, some of the others are just for my ongoing research, because the this Hebrew scriptures are so uh, interconnected that I, I, I don't really think that you know, we should say I've done it all. I mean, I, th- I think yeah. it's it's uh, there's a you know when we go back with the ancients like this and sit with them, we're used to modern and we click 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 the whole thing. But to really be with them as they sift through things, there's a lot more deep and seismic kind of relationships um, between things that. We, we sometimes just scratch the surface and get it the more obvious. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's awesome because, you know, I, I would agree. I think this is more of a springboard for someone reading it. Um, like me, when I'm flipping through it, man, it just excited me to no end um, because it sort of opened a door for me. And that's why it was so important for me to get a reference Bible because I wanted to be more aware of this and to be looking and seeking uh, ways to read scripture uh, in the light of, uh, you know, I guess read whatever book I'm reading in the light of the larger narrative of the Bible. So, um, awesome. Uh, and I, I, th- I think, Samuel, that, you know, this idea that you have a Bible that helps you read scripture with scripture, and that's something we Protestants have talked about for a long time. But we didn't invent it, and that's that's really the thing, that the use of the Old Testament in the New and the use of earlier scriptures within Israel's scriptures and later parts of Israel's scriptures, these are showing us that it was the biblical writers were especially studying earlier scriptures. They're soaked in it. And so there's this in many cases, we call it an interpretive blend, where uh, a biblical writer will look and read this scripture in light of this scripture. So they're reading two earlier scriptures together, but then the sum, the theological sum is greater than the parts. And so that's one of the ways that the Spirit of God has been pleased to um, progress, progressively reveal His redemptive will is through the scriptures and their effect, essentially, on later biblical authors. Mm. So, reading the Bible with the Bible, it's a good practice, but when you're doing this, you're exactly kind of joining with what the scriptural authors themselves did, and we're beginning to think with them as they thought about what God's trying to accomplish in our world. Mm. That's fantastic. Um, So, you sort of alluded to earlier um, authors writing when they had perhaps at the time the the Torah 
or the Psalms and the Torah uh, later on, you know, we pick up, you know, Protestant, a Bible, and we have two sections. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, and we, maybe perhaps sometimes to our detriment, we sort of put, we keep that line, that firm line there, we kind of have this, we see them in separate boxes, Old, Old Testament, New Testament, but sort of what you mentioned earlier sort of takes that concept, and I'd just like to hear you comment on it, because I never really thought about it until I, I was listening to James B. Jordan teaching on uh, progressive revelation or something, but he was talking about how essentially we have a New Testament when we have the later writers writing after, and they would have had Torah, and then when we see the prophets writing later, they're writing, they essentially have the Old and a New Testament, and they're adding to that. So by the time we get to our New Testament, it's, it's really like the third or fourth or fifth iteration. It's not necessarily just the second uh, Testament, right? So um, what, what are your thoughts on the dynamic? Because I think to a, to a certain sense, seeing Jesus, um, you want to make a distinction, but what are your thoughts on that, that distinction of Old and New? Yeah, I mean, you hit on it right there. The, the, the profoundness of the revelation of God in Christ, um, the, it's right that we call it the New Testament. I mean, there's a, a new day. I mean, this is, uh, you know, there's a realization that all of these um, ways that God had revealed himself further and further in the Hebrew scriptures come to a culmination in the teaching, death, and resurrection of Christ. So it's 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 right that we think in terms of Israel's scriptures and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But the other side of what you're getting at is also true. No person in the New Testament had a New Testament. Mm -hmm. Not one of them. Uh, so, I mean, the idea of the New Testament is a post-New um, Testament author perspective. I mean, we you know, when, if we were to talk to them, they'd be like, New Testament? What do you need a New Testament for? We have the Torah, the prophets, mm. the Psalms. That's the gospel of Christ. What's wrong with you? Mm. Uh, and you even hear the sentiment as early as Christ when he is telling a story uh, in, in Luke about um, some dead people of all things. And so this, uh, this dead rich man says to Abraham, but if only somebody comes back from the dead and talks to my my siblings, then they'll 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 change. And Abraham says, they have the Torah and prophets. If they don't believe them, they don't need somebody to rise from the dead. So in some sense, right, there's this idea that the Lord's already spoken the gospel in Torah and prophets. And um, you know, the revelation of God in Christ unlock something really special in the New Testament where all of a sudden there's this light bulb turn on. Hmm. But nobody in the New Testament feels that there's any inadequacy in the Old Testament, hmm. right? The um, wow. Paul and Sosthenes say in Corinthians, right? Christ died according to the scriptures. He died for our sins according hmm. to the scriptures. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Yeah. There's no sense that they were like, well, if only we had a New Testament, we could explain yeah. the gospel to you. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I love that. Wow. Um, okay, so um, getting to the book, I noticed in there, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought there was a couple books, Song of Solomon and, and Esther, that you didn't have any um, allusions for. Um, has anything come up since, uh, or uh, I don't know? Can you can you comment to that? I mean, were you searching for it and couldn't find it? I was just uh, curious. Yeah, I mean, I I pushed hard everywhere, Samuel. Um, but maybe we should pause for just a second mm -hmm. to kind of cl clue in your listeners that might not be familiar with this area of study. Yeah. So this book is focused especially on, I, I use the word, exegetical allusions or exegetical uh, uses of scripture. And so um, for every, to call it an exegetical allusion, first of all, I'm using the word allusion as an umbrella for um, quotation, paraphrase, and allusion. But exegetical means um, that, I guess there's three things that there needs to be for each exegetical allusion. There needs to be an identifiable donor text. Now, the donor text is the earlier scripture that donates revelation. And then there needs to be an identifiable receptor text. That's the receiving text. That's the text that receives revelation. But thirdly, there needs to be identifiable exegetical outcomes. So um, probably in this book, I don't know how many, but there's many hundreds of exegetical allusions, and there's a study on each one through this book. That's what the book is. Um, but besides that, you may have noticed in the end of each chapter, there's filters. Um, a lot of people haven't done that before. So what you usually get in a book, like all these studies that I've mentioned before, is you just get all these studies and you wonder, so everything that's an illusion is an exegetical illusion? Well, right. no, actually, there's only many, many hundreds of exegetical illusion. There's thousands of non-exegetical illusions. Mm. And so what makes it non-exegetical? Well, it could be that there's a parallel, there's similarities, but there's not one donor text. There's 10 texts that do this. Mm. And so then saying, you can't say, so this later author, which text are they using? Well, yeah, yeah. if you're trying to force it, then you pick this one and here's why. But if it's a common theme, then it's sort of this theological thing. Mm. Uh, and the same thing would be true if there's not exegetical outcomes. That is, sometimes a later text will make a broad allusion to an earlier text, but not really do anything with it. It's just kind of maybe using it as part of its other teachings, but it's not yeah. expanding it. Yeah. So in Song of Songs and in Esther, those are two books where I don't think that part of the strategy of those books was to present or to build on these exegetical illusions. Mm. But that's not to say there's no similarities or themes. Um, Esther, of course, has a lot of fraternity with or sorority, I guess, um, sisterhood, brotherhood with the other court stories, especially the Joseph court story. Uh, okay. uh, maybe all the other later um, court stories like Daniel and Esther both play off the, the, the Joseph story in many ways. But there's no place where, like in Daniel, you can say in Daniel too, that Nebuchadnezzar is more Pharaoh-like than Pharaoh was, and Daniel is more Joseph-like than Joseph was. So he, they're they're both just like Joseph mm -hmm. and Pharaoh, but even more because right. Pharaoh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar says, 
I'm not going to tell you the dream, right. but you tell me my dream and tell me what it means. And it's like, yeah. that's like Pharaoh on steroids. It's, it's, yeah. it's awesome. In Esther, you have all these like sort of similarities, but no place where you have an exegetical upgrade where you need to work on Genesis. It's, it's more just um, part of the, the flavor or the genre, if you will. So it was a choice that the author made to do something really different. So not only is God not mentioned in uh, Esther, but actually, here's these two protagonists of the book. They don't even seem to care about the covenant. Um, they don't. They don't pray when there's a national crisis. They don't. Um, they're not concerned about following dietary regulations. They're not concerned about mm-hmm. obeying the Torah. So. The question the book of Esther pushes us with, it's the worst case scenario. It's not, you know, um, what's God going to do? What's God going to do to protect his people if they don't even acknowledge him mm-hmm. and if they don't even obey covenant? And so part of if there was, a, you know, these illusions, maybe the, I'm just speculating here, but maybe the author felt like, no, no, this has to be a, its own whole, like, its own whole thing. So there's a mm-hmm. biblical familiarity about it for sure. Yeah. But nowhere do you have the the narrator whispering like you hear in Genesis. And the Lord was with Esther and the Lord was with Mordecai. Yeah. And yeah. you know, lifted up their countenance before uh the king. We we don't hear that. Yeah. Hmm. I got you. Uh so you mentioned earlier uh you put quotations under the umbrella of illusions that was actually one of my questions um because i was reading through and you know perhaps there are are examples but they seem to be uh, way fewer because a lot of times new testament um we see a lot of just quotations as so and so you know sometimes they even mention uh the author um and it's you know sometimes just verbatim uh, in the Old Testament, it seems to be more allusions. Do we ever see like what we see in the New Testament where there's just like a direct quotation? There are, but but you're right. I think the sort of the later books in the Old Testament do more quotation, and then you jump forward to the New Testament, and it's even more. So part of that might just be the style of the times. I don't know, mm-hmm. because, you know, the Old Testament's written across a thousand-year period where the New Testament's written like that in two generations. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that could have been part of the aura. But the other thing that we have going is because there's a greater and greater esteem and a greater and greater um, sense of canonical authority, there's that emerging canonical sense. So, that that may, the further we get into it, you know, point towards why there's more quotations mm-hmm. in the later books of the Old Testament, like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, and less in the earlier books. But there, there's another piece here besides the actual just, you know, using the same words. There's also these citation formulas. And so citation formulas, you already mentioned it, um, where a New Testament author will say, uh, and this was to fulfill what was said by the prophets. And that's a citation formula. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also a lot of citation formulas of all sorts that go all the way through. So, for example, um, in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, there's a second version of the Ten Commandments with a few differences. Yeah. And in 
three of the commands, there's uh, some substantial differences. And you'll notice in two of those commands, there's citation formulas, as the Lord had commanded. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. there's especially a need to kind of maybe say that and mm-hmm. link to the continuity of the earlier when there's going to be these expansions that Moses is going to do. Uh, there's there's also now and again verbatim quotations like in um, 2 Kings 14.6, there's a quotation of uh, Deuteronomy 24.16 that Right, the parent isn't put to death for the child. The child's not put to death for the parent. Each must mm. be held accountable for their own sins. Um, and then there's, uh, um, well, there's a good number of quotations in the Psalms and so forth. So there are quotations all through the Hebrew Scriptures. But you're right; there is something more pronounced um, about the style of quotation that we have in the New Testament, mm. and and. and Maybe that can be plotted on a continuum so that we have more and more of that sort of self-conscious quotation, then commentary, mm-hmm. as we move through the Old Testament as well. Mm-hmm. Wow, cool. Um, so this is something I heard you speak on on another interview, and I thought it was really fascinating. Um, so it's still within the, the nature of what we're talking about, but it perhaps like it's on the outskirts. But you mentioned that um, Yahweh essentially makes adaptations to the law, um, and, you know, you termed it as progressive revelation, so, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, of the example, there were, um, I guess there was wives of, um, one of the tribes that they, uh, they didn't get an inheritance because they didn't have husbands, um, so they were told to marry within their tribe so they can get that, but there was essentially an adaptation that was made, um, that God had made to his former um, law. I guess you you say there, there's a couple examples like that you gave. So in light of that, and, and you can elaborate uh, on that, um, but in light of that, my question was, is how do you see the nature of law whenever we see it adapting like that uh, progressively? Yeah, so there's, that's a really, that's an excellent question, but let's take it into two steps first. So there's, there's these five special stories. There's lots and lots of um, legal exegesis in Torah so that what we have, even in the book of Exodus, there's right the Ten Commandments, then there's, uh, we call it the Torah collection in chapters 21, 22, and 23. But after the people rebel with the golden calf, there's a reinterpretation of the Torah in the book of Exodus mm-hmm. in yeah. um Exodus chapter 34, verses 11 through 26, we call that the um, covenant renewal collection. And that was the Lord's way of affirming that he will, in fact, forgive the people and go with them. And so he gives them a interpreted version of the Torah that he just gave them. So even within the book of Exodus, Mm -hmm. we already have this reinterpretation. We have the same thing in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, so that each time there's this like new moment, there's this um, a need for a reinterpretation, in, in a sense, or a reapplication, uh, all, all sorts of different ways that this is interpreted. But um, in that, there's five special stories that you're alluding to. And these have been recognized all the way back a, as long ago, at least in Philo's time, these five special stories. 
And so one of them, you're right, is the story of Zelophehad's daughters in Numbers 27. And I don't think this is an adjustment of a law, but the expectation was males inherit. And so they're saying, hey, our dad died. He didn't. He died of his own sin, but he didn't die with Korah's rebellion. Why should we not get an inheritance just, inheritance just because our dad didn't have any sons? And Moses brings us to the Lord. The Lord says, hey, that's a really good point. Women can inherit. And here's the deal. And so then the, um, uh, the, the male establishment of Manasseh, that's their tribe, of course, in chapter 36, they come to Moses and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't be given land to women. If you give land to women, they're going to get married to somebody in some other tribe. And then the land that that, that the Lord promised our tribe mm-hmm. is going to get married out. So mm-hmm. no, no, no. And the Lord says, yeah. you know what? That's a really good point. You're right too. And so the Lord adjusts his adjustment in this case, says, now listen, these women can inherit, but they need to preserve their father's name because that's the whole point of it. And to do that, they're going to have to marry inside their tribe. So if a woman wanted to marry outside of the tribe, then she would have to forego her um, inheritance because, right, that was promised to that tribe forever. So she's actually exiting the tribe at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so anyway, that's that's sort of um, what's going on. But, you know, you bring this up in a good way. Um, What does this say about the nature of law? Well, I mean, I think what this probably needs to do is have us pause and put a pin in it for a minute. And you need to think about the fact that um, law is, um, I, I guess we would say, it's core. I might better call it a covenant. It's a relationship um, between God and his people. So what we do not see in the Bible, and this is very important to get the order right, We do not see in the Bible that the Lord calls Moses and says, listen, here's this law. Take this to Egypt, and when the people start obeying me, I'll redeem them. I mean, that's not how the burning bush goes. Mm -hmm. The Lord just, he is faithful to his promise to Abraham. So he he redeems the people, and then he gives them covenant. Mm -hmm. And the way that the covenant works is really, you know, a function of relationship too. So we see... Mm -hmm. If we're even reading in the Ten Commandments, we're saying Deuteronomy chapter, um, uh, uh, I think it's seven, verses nine and ten, we see that the Lord calls some people Yahweh lovers, others Yahweh haters. Those that obey the covenant are Yahweh lovers. Those that disobey are Mm. Yahweh haters. So it's Mm. the covenant isn't this like thing like you better do this. Don't ask any questions. So. Mm. Thinking about law as looking for um, sort of this rigid compliance, this is something that modern interpreters are bringing to the text. It has nothing to do with the Bible. Um, you know, so if we think about, for example, the way the Bible looks at it, we might think about boundaries and core. So let's take a covenantal relationship like marriage. There's boundaries, right? There has to be sexual fidelity. Um, there has to be. That's that's key. So you have somebody like Paul and Sosthenes in First uh, Corinthians saying, you know, if you're falling into lust, you know, you need to be in conjugal relations with your spouse. Mm. But then that's really just a boundary, right? You you have Paul elsewhere will say, love your spouse, 
And this love is on the analogy of the way um, you would serve the Lord. Um, and it's on the analogy of the way the Lord would give his life for his uh, um, spouse. That's how we love each other. And so, in other words, that covenantal relationship, yeah, there's boundaries, and we can kind of pick at the boundaries if we want, but the boundaries aren't the important thing. It's that core. It's that relationship. And so, that's why, you know, God was not only willing, but it's normal in the Torah for there to be exegetical upgrades of earlier legal instruction. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's not just about compliance. It's about um, the people in relationship with God. And think about all the changes that people go through, just even in Torah, right? From being slaves, uh, to being wanderers, to having a worship facility that now they have to worship at. So now there's all these needs for holiness because they become potential worshipers in Leviticus. And then they come to the edge of the land of promise where they're going to all of a sudden be spread out. They're not going to live right next to the tabernacle anymore. Mm-hmm. And so there's massive sociological changes that happen even within the Torah. So that's why we find progressive revelation of legal instruction in every book of the Torah. Mm. You know, there's there's no, there's no book of the Torah where it's like, it's just the law. Don't ask any questions. Yeah. Just do it. Uh, that has yeah. nothing to do with Torah in the Bible. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's easy, again, if we like pit the old versus the new, it's easy to kind of see the law um, as like our sort of modern concept of law where it's um, something to follow or else the consequence uh, comes and it's we're strictly following it so that we don't get the consequence. And and therefore, um, I don't know, we... we yeah, we see it as something, I think, different, um, as you mentioned, that from what you just described. I mean, what you just described is, you know, it it comes to mind as a, a fatherly relationship to his children that's going to set up, uh, you know, a way of life, uh, um, how, how to live. Um, under God and amongst God's people. That's incredible. Um, it, it sort of it makes me think of looking at Adam in the garden. He was told not to eat of, of the of the fruit. Um, and th- that would give him knowledge of good and evil. And we see Solomon. And death. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, and, and we see um, Solomon later getting knowledge of, of good and evil. So it, it, it does... It begs the question, you know, we do see that progression throughout Scripture where um, where it, it's not necessarily just like a, like a, a, a flat line. Um, anyway, uh, you answered that beautifully. Um, that, uh, that just, uh, that warms my heart, man. Um, anyway, I wanted to ask you, because um, I think when you start to look at, at, at the scripture like this, and the more and more you make these connections, um, I'll let you comment on it, and I'll try to, to you know, describe it as best as I can, but um, I don't know. I I might have actually mentioned this on that episode uh, that you watched. Um, I came across this idea 
it's a liberal idea, uh, the documentary hypothesis, and that is that um, we have multiple contributors to the Torah uh, that are often sometimes even contradicting one another. And so a lot of times when we see these uh, apparent contradictions in the Torah, uh, the simple explanation is as well, we had this writer who wrote this, we had this writer who wrote this, and we get it kind of meshed together. And, um, you know, that's known as the documentary hypothesis. Um, so I, I wanted your thoughts on that. Um, because that sort of sees scripture as kind of very dis dismembered and just jumbled and sort of not cohesive, which is kind of uh, very different um, than I think uh, how, how you would see it. So I'd like to hear your comment on, on those kind of ideas. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I, I think that that would be a good talk. I'm, I am just curious. I was asked about this on another podcast just mm -hmm. recently, and they said on this other podcast that um, this is the main question their listeners ask of them. I mean, they, they ask this all the time. So, um, wow. So, I mean, you're bringing this up just this came up in one of your podcasts or your reading? No. Uh, so I mentioned that uh, I had I mentioned it in the okay. episode I did uh, that, that you listened to. Right. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that I'd come across it. You were being it, interviewed. To, right, right, right. Yeah. And I'm trying to think when I, where I came across it. Probably several different uh, sources where I came across this, um, you know, when you're reading uh, commentaries. Um, it, and I'll, I'll just kind of put that all in the basket of like liberal thinking, but I guess a lot of what I was reading was within that framework. And so, um, I haven't really, I haven't gotten those questions or heard from it from really any other believer that I, that I know it's just something I read a lot about. Okay. Um, and at first I sort of latched onto it because it, it, uh, it does solve on the surface, some of those like seemingly issues we have with how the, how the Bible is written. Um, yeah, has some it, explanatory it creates, power. It creates more problems, I think, <laughs> than it solves. Um, so anyway, uh, I think when you start kind of going down that path, it can kind of lead you to further conclusions. And I think it has potential to give you a lesser view of Scripture, whereas, you know, um, a more conservative view, I think, will will do the opposite. So, uh, Yeah, so um, we won't be able to get into all the million things and. I think you you've laid out some of the um, important differences already. There there is a great explanatory power that the documentary hypothesis brought to um, Pentateuchal studies, and that's one of the reasons why it was so exciting in the late 1800s in Europe, and then later in the United States through the 20th century. But people really did get tired of it by the 1970s, and so it's been um, much less. Uh, much, has had much less power or sway, let's let's say. So it's it's interesting to me that I'm hearing more about it. But let's frame it two two kind of points. Like there's the philosophical we can talk about for just a minute, and then nuts and bolts. Uh, on the philosophical side of this, um, there's this sense, this underlying value with the um, construction of the documentary hypothesis that older is better, and that unique is better and derivative is not as good. And then maybe a third um, philosophical value is the prophetic oracle is better and Jewish ritualism is worse. So you know, we need to put ourselves with the enlightened Europeans 
who in the late 1800s were um, stewing about all these things. And so what they did is they found, they discovered it in the Bible. They discovered the oldest document is J, uh, the Yahwist. And look at that. He's just like an enlightened European. They created him in their own image. So here's J. Uh, there's no lists. There's no laws. There's no Jewish mumbo jumbo. This is a good German, you know, uh, sort of a, 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 um, ancient writer. Mm-hmm. And there's no miracles. There's no weird stuff. I mean, so the, they, they created J in their own image. And then, of course, you know, then the next writer dumps some stuff on. The next writer dumps some more stuff on until we get to the last writer, P, worst case scenario, the priestly writer. And he's obsessed by lists. He's obsessed by um, Jewish rituals. And so he practically ruins what used to be this great Torah by putting all this Jewish stuff in it. But luckily, Jesus came and Right, he's a good European too. So he got all the Jewish stuff out of there, and we got us uh, Christians fix the whole thing right back up. So philosophically, mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, I'm making light of it, but right. tragically, yeah. there's I mean, we can call it you know scholars. Do we call it anti-Semitism? Do we call it anti-Judaism? Um, it's hard to say what, but there's an underlying prejudice, a racial prejudice even, an ideological prejudice that's behind this dividing up of the sources and putting one later and earlier and so forth. Um, So if we get down to the um, nuts and bolts, though, there's problems there too, because that's the part that, you know, where we actually say, okay, enough all this talk. Let's, what does the Bible actually say? Well, to kind of do the documentary hypothesis, there's two key things to do. One is to lift the legal collections out of the context. So, okay, let's just take strip off all the narrative. Let's take the Ten Commandments. Let's take the um, the covenant collection in Exodus 21, 2, and 3. Let's take the holiness collection. We'll just take out Leviticus 17 through 26. Now let's take the Torah collection in Deuteronomy 12 through 26. So here we have these four major legal collections. And we can even put the covenant renewal collection. We take out Exodus 34, 11 through 26. So we put these out and then they compare the laws without the stories. And then they compare the stories separately. Mm-hmm. So by stripping them of their context, it, it almost, if you read Exodus uh, or Deuteronomy or Leviticus, they're so contextualized. So it's already wrong to take them out of their context as a basis for comparison. And then you hit on the other thing, and this is this is critical. Um, for the documentary hypothesis to work anything like it was traditionally laid out, it's built around contradiction. And so mm-hmm. what the theorists must do is every difference has to be treated as a contradiction. It can't be an adjustment. It can't be a tweak. It, everything, if it's not exactly the same words in exactly the same way, it's a contradiction. Yeah. And so then that's how a theory can support. Well, there's this group that said this, there's that group that said that, there's this group that said the other thing. And so they all hate each other. They all said these contradictory things. But guess what? They all lost control because somebody else put them all together in the Pentateuch 
And that became yeah. the authoritative. So there's, mm. I, I think that at the nuts and bolts level, both of those moves um, to take the Pentateuch apart as a basis to comparis- comparison and to insist that all difference must be defined as contradiction. Both of those are inherently problematic because, you know, let's just face it. I mean, uh, we can read the Pentateuch and it makes sense. I mean, so there's more to it than all that. And I don't want to make light of it yeah, because yeah. The, the, the one thing that critical this critical theory helped us with is to stop and really listen to the text better and to say, yeah, Leviticus does sound different than Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. What's going on with this? But once we get at the more granular level and we're looking at the Hebrew syntax, it doesn't work to put P last because there's many, many places where Deuteronomy is certainly um, building off of Leviticus. You know, we, we would never explain that you take this thing that's has straightforward grammar and somebody makes it weird grammar. It's easier to say, no, no, no. The strange grammar places that we find in Leviticus, they're made more straightforward in later. Later texts tend to disambiguate in terms of syntax. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's more complicated than all this, Samuel. I don't want to yeah, act yeah. like it's nothing. Yeah. This is a this is a big deal among yeah. scholars, mm-hmm. but it's um it it you know the Bible's always been like this. So we you know we're really just discovering things. I'm using air quotes right now in the Bible. Uh, that that's that's one of the things that's happening here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think, to our detriment, to or at least the theory, to to its shame, it, um, a lot of times I've noticed a couple of things. One, um, they sort of miss out on the typological reading of scripture because everything's so completely separate, where we see a pattern played out, um, like with uh, Abraham and Pharaoh, and we see that happen you know, that pattern play out uh, a couple times. I've even heard the documentary, like that, that, that camp say, oh, well, this is the same story is just told differently by the two different contributors. Right. They have a different center of gravity, right? So they, um, a, a critical scholar would think, well, you're not even really looking at the right thing, right? You're, you know, we're looking at the trying to get to the historical background and to see these competing ideologies is the way to do it. So they're not after the big story of the mm, Christian yeah. Bible, you understand, or the yeah. big story of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there's uh, they're after an historical reconstruction that they're setting out. Mm. And, and you, yeah. you, you know, to go back there, the there's some big value decisions at the beginning. Not everybody's like this, but this is in print. You can look it up. Uh, you've heard of Julius Wellhausen and his prolegomena of um, the history of ancient Israel. Like that's the most famous JEDP book. It's the most mm-hmm. famous um, documentary hypothesis book. And you can read in his um, intro in the translation um, when he was, before he came up with the idea at all, before he did anything, he heard about another scholar who had put the prophets before the law. And he, he admits this in his book. He said, before I even investigated it, I was prepared to adopt this. I mean, so in other words, that whole value thing of wow. 
right? The prophets, they're for all these kind of values that, you know, help the poor to bring justice. And so to put the older is better, and then to put all the Jewish stuff, this legalism later, that just seemed right at the time. And so then the theory comes after this value choice. And so this isn't something I'm making up. You can fact check this by looking at, you know, his introduction and he says it himself. I don't remember what page, but maybe if you look it up, he can post it on your thing somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is nuts. Thank you for sharing that. Well, it's an awesome Um, quote. I wish I had it in front of me, but I didn't know how deep we'd get into this. But that's, I think that's often how this thing goes is that you're, you're approaching it with this idea already. Um, But we do too. And, and, you know, we need to admit that, you know, those of us who are um, approaching the scriptures as Christian scripture that leads toward Mm -hmm. the gospel of Christ, we're prejudiced and biased. So I I don't want to pretend we're not. I mean, so we have our own blinders on because of um, all the different things that we bring to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. The other thing, I guess the other thing I was going to say is is so ridiculous is that I was uh, recently reading uh, when Joseph got sold. um, It, it mentions that there's uh, an Ishmaelite, um, caravan and that the Midianites pulled them out and then so you know it was a little bit confusing I was reading and I think later it says that the Midianites sold uh they sold them and then later it says the Ishmaelites did so there there whatever it was there was actually a, a couple seemingly contradictions in there and I looked it up and that was one of the solutions was there was multiple writers, and I never heard that taken it that far. This is just one story, and you mean to tell me that you're going to have multiple contributors to this one small portion of a story? It's just bizarre that 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 once you adopt that, then that just becomes the the means to solve any contradiction or, or problem uh, whatsoever. Well, that's just the. Yeah. So, I mean, in biblical studies, that's really what it was for these past years. So a a story like this is, uh, you can only see this in video. I'm interlacing my fingers. I'll narrate for the audio, but right. The two stories, they come apart just like, right. Just like we would pull our two hands apart. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, so there continues to be studies on that, but um, I'm not going to remember the scholar, but uh, a scholar did a really fantastic study of that passage and um, just just recently in a journal, maybe two three years ago, and I can't forget it. Can't remember his name. All right, this is a bad story, so you better go on to your next question. <laughs> okay, you can let me know if, you, if it comes to you. Um, it would have been better if I could remember anything. <laughs> um, all right, so one thing uh, that's really about uh, what we see in the New Testament when they're. Uh, alluding, quoting the Old Testament, they're talking about prophecy being fulfilled. And man, that that is just super exciting where they say, oh, this is to fulfill what the prophet said. And you can see all these things that Jesus does. Um, And it just is super, super exciting. Um, So my question was, do we see anything like that uh, within the Old Testament where we see prophecies made it earlier that are fulfilled uh, later in the Old Testament? So this, the simple answer is yes, but, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, a lot of these answers are that way. 
uh, a lot of these issues. So, yes, if you're asking me personally, everything that we see as far as how the New Testament authors use Scripture, they're modeling that on what we find in the Old Testament. So, uh, in that sense, there's really a continuity of hermeneutic that runs from the old to the new. There's something really new in Christ. But yes, we do see that, but it's way more pronounced in the New Testament. Right near the end of the Old Testament, two of the um, very last books written uh, are Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. And so those two books have a fulfillment formula, just like we find in Mark, just like we find in John. Excuse, uh, I said Mark, Matthew and John, um, where Matthew probably, you know, he he... He got his master's degree on this, I guess, because everywhere he's saying, right, mm -hmm. this was to fulfill what was said by the prophet. But the end of Chronicles ends by um, the edict of Cyrus is to fulfill what the Lord had said by the prophet Jeremiah. And mm -hmm. so there's an interpretation yeah, yeah. of Jeremiah in light of Leviticus with a fulfillment formula. And we find that same fulfillment formula in the beginning part of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So this was just a great way to... to reinterpret earlier scripture. And so the New Testament took something that just happened a little bit at the end of the Old Testament, and it became something, you know, just really stellar in Matthew and John, especially. That's the two books where we see in the New Testament. It's not across the whole New Testament, but those two books, right, that was a very useful thing. Um, but the other thing might be, we would call it, I don't know if you've done this on your podcast, we use the term typological patterns, mm -hmm. um, which refers to earlier persons or earlier institutions or earlier events or earlier um, prophetic oracles or whatever that have patterns and that these patterns are reused in later person, you know, the present biblical presentation of later persons, institutions, events, and so on. Mm -hmm. So um, these typological patterns can be forward looking or backward looking. Mm -hmm. So a forward-looking um, uh, pattern is uh, such as like Isaiah 11, where Isaiah talks about, you know, when you're taken into Mesopotamian exile, the Lord's going to bring you back just like he did when he brought you out of Egypt. So there's the, an explicit um, indicator, if you will, a literary signal and that's the word like or as. And there's different kinds of literary signals that the Old Testament authors use when they're doing a forward-looking typological pattern. This is what you can expect. It'll be on the analogy of X. And so there's an expectation. And then so later in Isaiah, he comes back to this idea very famously. And in chapter 40, talks about how uh, the, you know, the Lord is going to bring the people back in a new exodus through the wilderness. And that theme is reoccurring in Isaiah chapters 40 and following. But it starts with Isaiah 11 and this forward-looking pattern or analogy that there's a new redemption that one can expect. Well, there's also what we would call backwards-looking. That means if we're reading it, the earlier person, institution, law, oracle, whatever, it's not expectational in itself. But then the Lord does something else, and a later author builds this later thing on the earlier pattern. And so 
then we find this sort of a surprising expectationalness um, in it. So that's a backward looking typological pattern. A really good example of this, an important example of this is if you think about First uh, Kings chapter eight, when the glory of the Lord came into the temple and it was so intense that it drove the priests out and they couldn't perform their worship duties. Hmm. Well, this is, this is Exodus chapter 40, right? Um, where the glory of the Lord came into the tabernacle and drove even Moses out of the tabernacle. And so you have this connection. And that's an important one because it's brought up in Chronicles who he uh, he clones it. There's two cases of the glory filling in first Chron- excuse me, um second Chronicles chapter six, and then again second Chronicles uh, chapter seven. so he 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 does it twice. Uh, sorry, I think it's five and seven. And then the um, the thing that makes that one so important is uh, if if you know you think through the Davidic covenant where David wants to build a house for the Lord, and at first Nathan says, "Fine, that's a great idea." And then the Lord says, "No, no, no, no." And so Nathan comes back and says, "You will not build a house for me." And Nathan says this in Second Samuel seven seven. Did I ever? ask for a house. No. Yeah. You know, I've been with you all these years this other way. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on from there, of course, and says, I'm going to make a house for you and your house will make a house for me. Mm-hmm. Now, the point I want to get back to here is in verse seven, when the Lord said, I never asked for a house, then all of a sudden we realize the tabernacle wasn't a forward-looking pattern, right? Because, I mean, the Lord makes that explicit. So yeah. that has to be a backwards only. So the expectationalness of the tabernacle is retroactively infused in it, I guess you would say, from the temple. So that's what we mean when we say there's hmm. forward-looking patterns and they have explicit forward-looking literary signals, like, as, so on. And then there's other ones that they're only realized retrospectively. So when we come to a New Testament passage, and I don't want to say they're all easy, they're they're very, very hard. But if we take a passage um, like, it's very controversial, uh, uh, but the use of Hosea 11.1 1 in Matthew 2.15, right? There's all the pieces. This was to fulfill what was said by the prophet, right? And so here, it's a right, that's right out of the Old Testament, this sort of fulfillment formula. Mm-hmm. And of course, using a typological pattern retrospectively, right? Something like Hosea 11, one that's looking back at the Exodus. Now, all of a sudden, in light of the life of Christ, that can have an expectational sense put onto it retro, retroactively. So, the New Testament authors then, there, there's something new in Christ for sure. I mean, this is a very uh, this is the culmination of God's great work of redemption. But when we talk about exegetical hermeneutics, the New Testament authors are carrying forward. So we can read Matthew and say, this is weird, man. But Matthew's like, what are you talking about? Just read the Bible. And so this is where we we need to take the step and read Matthew's Bible with Matthew. And so Matthew's Right. He's he's all over this stuff. Hmm. Wow. So 
So my answer is yes. Um, that's the yes part of my answer, I guess. I guess there's a but part too. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there there really is some um, surprising differences. Like in other words, especially when we're talking about fulfilled prophecy. Uh, but let's say um, specific examples might help the best. But like Nehemiah chapter nine, this is a the Levitical prayer where it's kind of the longest retelling of history, uh, Israel's history in any prayer. And sort of there's a there's a reinterpretation of things even within the book of Ezra and Nehemiah there, because now the sudden the people are looking at themselves, it's not good enough for us to be back in our land. We're slaves. And so then instead of the exile being the, I guess, the center of gravity of their identity, they're saying, no, this goes all the way back to when we went under vassalage, that is under slavery or taxation from the Assyrian emperors. And so then there's this, so exile is relativized. So in other words, when they're trying to figure out what's God doing, they're like looking around, they're saying, we're back in our land, but like this stinks. I've read Isaiah, you know, this isn't all great. We live in this dumpy Judean place. There's economic depression. This is a dumpy temple. You know, what's going on? The emperor is the only one getting rich here. And so they're rethinking the whole thing because the way that they're reading the Bible doesn't pan out to the um, way the reality is. Now, they're they're just in the middle of the story. But you think about... Um, I don't know if you've read any um, Second Temple Judaic literature, but something like the Psalms of Solomon, let's just say 17. Well, there the Messiah they're expecting is like David, and David needs to deliver uh, the servant. So it's the servant there is viewed as in exile. So they're reading Isaiah, you know, mm-hmm. all through the 40s and 50s there, and they're saying, the servant needs to be rescued. David will come and rescue the servant. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really interesting right way to read these hopeful and these other teachings about exile. Very different than how the New Testament interprets it, because there's something surprising. You even think about the the um, the scholars, the Judaic scholars, biblical scholars. They're lay scholars known as Pharisees. Well, they're studying the scriptures like crazy but they have maybe a different center of gravity. And so I, I think one of the things that we really should take away from this and this, yes, but is that, you know, we really need to have some measure of humility uh, in that just about everybody through the history of the Bible and even outside of the Bible and in between Bible, people have thought they understood where the Bible was taking us, but it went a different way. And so I think that we're a little naive to think that we have it figured out, where I think we're likely to be surprised as well in some cases. Now, I'm not yeah. saying something wild here. I'm just saying, you know, we need to probably have due caution when we interpret and not think that we know everything, but understand where we fit in what God's doing. So anyway, yes, but the New Testament's definitely like the Old Testament in its hermeneutical mechanics. But no, the New Testament sheds a lot more light on 
what Christ has done and brings a clarity that just wasn't available to those that, you know, uh, uh, lived before the coming of Christ. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because as far as end time prophecy goes, there's um, a lot of different views out there. Yeah, and you didn't bring me on here to talk about that, did no, you? No, no, good, no. Good, good. I'm just using that as an example. <laughs> uh, I'm just piggybacking on what you said as far as humility, because a lot of times there can be a lot of assurance um, in, in one particular view, and perhaps we, we, we're putting too much um too much you know credence on that because uh, i often think as you mentioned le leading up to christ they you know they they got it wrong i'm sure we probably got it wrong uh, as far as you know his ultimate uh, return and, and judgment so so I, I haven't listened to all your podcasts mm -hmm. so let me just ask you something so we've been on for a long time already and i suppose most yeah. listeners checked out at 30 minutes so um I'll be happy to meet with you another time too, but do you, is there, why don't you bring us toward a conclusion for, for today's oh, okay. back yeah. and forth? No, I mean, yeah, I was going to ask you how I should have, I meant to ask you at the <laughs> beginning, uh, how long you want to go. I've gone long, I've gone much longer than this before. Typically we're, we're like an hour. But it's just the two ago. of us because nobody's listening anymore. It's just you well, and me. <laughs> we've been going for like an hour 15, which is actually my, that's my average. That's my average. All right. So, so Good. I'm glad are... to be average on your <laughs> on your show. <laughs> I just mean to say they're they're used to to these. You know, if this is a long episode, then all right. But I'm a, I'm a teacher. When the time gets to a certain time, my students leave. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I hear that. Um, okay. So um, yeah. I mean, I think we we've hit on. Uh, you know, I, there's some more nitty gritty stuff. We've really gotten into the nitty gritty. Um, I perhaps maybe just uh, can ask you one more question and we can wrap up. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. And and in, in all seriousness, Samuel, I've I've enjoyed this conversation. You have a, um, I really appreciate your uh, sincerity in in this and in, in your quest. And so, if you'd like to have another conversation sometime, I'd, I'd be happy to, and we can kind of move forward into yeah maybe even a different topic or something. Sure. sure. Yeah. I anyway, hit me with your last question. Okay. And uh, so really, as I mentioned earlier, I came across your work uh, as I was reading up on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. So I kind of want to put that in, in context of that, because uh, I do think your work as far as Old Testament use of Old Testament can be enlightening as far as uh, how we do understand the New Testament's use of, of Old Testament. Um, and so uh, that'll be my my closing question, is if, like, if you hold to a particular view, because I know I've read a couple books, Zondervan has a counterpart book where they have, I think, four different views, and then there's another book out there that has like even more than that of particular ways to understand what the New Testament authors are doing as they quote um or allude to uh, Old Testament. Um, so do you hold to one in, in particular? And, you know, how how might your work um, enlighten us as we look at what the New Testament authors are doing with their use of Old Testament? All right, that's a really great question. So I can only go so far with you right now. So I've um, just about finished up 
a co-authored book on um, with I'm working with a New Testament scholar. He and I are writing a co-authored book. It's an introduction to the Bible's use of the Bible. So we're not looking at it like mm. New Testament use of the old anymore. Yeah, and cool. Old Testament use of the old. But we're saying you no. Know, we we need to yeah. do the Bible's use of the Bible because there's a cross-pollinization that has not gone on that must go on. Mm. So the short answer that I can give you is, um, yeah, I have a very particular view. I'm writing, I've already written a book about it. Great. Um, Great. But uh, the other part of my particular view that I can give you as a preview today is just what we really, really need to do and what has not been done is the scholarship of the New Testament use of the old has not taken into adequate consideration the Old Testament use of the old. Now, I think probably a notable exception uh, is, you've had him on your show a few times, uh, Greg Beale. Um, he's he's one that's for decades said, we need to study the Old Testament's use of the Old Testament so that we know the New Testament's use of the Old. But um, that, though he said that, that really hasn't come together. So that is a, a, a book project I've worked on. So the, the preview of that is, yes, just as the New Testament authors learn to interpret the Bible by studying how the, their Bible, those biblical authors interpreted the Bible, we need to bring that forward. So for sure, there's something to learn by studying the, uh, the exegetical circumstances of the Second Temple Judaic literature. That's very important. But those Second Temple sectarians and other Second Temple interpreters, they're also reading the Old Testament's use of the Old Testament. So in other words, everybody's drinking from the same pool. So what's been missing in the conversation is how the Old Testament use of the Old Testament informs Second Temple Judaic interpretation of the Old Testament and how the New Testament interprets the Old. So yeah. anyway, it's a great question. And the answer is, I have a whole book on it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so maybe that's something okay. we can uh, talk about down the road here. Yeah, cool. Um, and that's a short book, not a long book, by the way. So okay. you'll be able to read the whole thing. Awesome. Well, oh, I'm I, just giving you a hard time. <laughs> uh, no, I look forward to that. Um, uh, and this has been a great conversation. And I think there's probably a, a, a lot more that we could can get into. So um Thank you so much for coming on and thank you so much for being so generous in, in lending me a copy and doing a giveaway. Uh, that's so, so exciting. Um, I'll, uh, I'll close by inviting you, I guess, any closing thoughts and tell people where, you know, they can get in touch with you, where they can buy your books. Um, anything else you want to say about this upcoming project or anything else you're working on? No, uh, I think that's all good. I think that, um, uh, if you just put a, I can give you a link or something. You can put a link on your your, yeah, your page. Perfect. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to pray with you, right. Sam. Lord, we um we want to thank you for the opportunity for really wrestling, and I thank you for Samuel's work and his podcast and all these interviews where he's really tried to look at some things that are often ignored and off to the edge. Thank you for his fervor in that and whether he he is really seeking um, to help his constituents to find their way forward and to make sense of some of the things that are 
not normally talked about. We're grateful for your word, Lord, and the way it bears witness to the teaching, the death and resurrection of our Lord. We just, we can only express our gratitude to you for that, Lord. We ask that you would be with us now and strengthen us by your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.